Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision, the FinTech Fuse. This is Theo, your host for the episode, along with Barb McLean, our other host and my partner in crime. Joining us on the show today is Simon Taylor, head of strategy and content at Sardine, co-founder at 11FS, the brain behind the FinTech brain food and Seriously, someone that does not need introduction. If you're not subscribed to his newsletter, please stop, pause, and go do this right now. Welcome to the show, Simon. Thank you both for having me. Excited to be here. So let's start off with the brain behind the brain. I would think that your FinTech Brain Food newsletter is probably, you know, extremely widely read. We know we actually can't probably rely on your subscriber count for the number of people that consume it every week. So go subscribe. But readers like me, I know, await it with anticipation every week. You've got a very broad and deep view of the industry. And it's great because you bring those main stories back to a place where anyone can understand them, even if they're not in fintech. So I'd like to actually hear more about your writing process. How do you distill all of that down to something that's intelligible for the rest of us and take those salient points and make them so clear? So right up front, thank you, first of all. So right up front, the thing I say is it's me thinking out loud, and that is true. Like, this is a forcing function for me to think. I've had a few people say, the blog's not for us, is it, Simon? It's for you. And I'm like, yeah, you are all witnessing my own self-indulgence here, but the feedback loop forces me to learn because there's nothing as effective at learn to help you learn as being wrong on the internet. People will find you and they will correct you like you would not believe. So I've got my little disclaimer section at the bottom. Like I am one human being here. There's no team of researchers. Somebody asked me the other day, how big's the brain food team? And I'm like, no, <laughs> sweetie, no, there is no team. It's, it's, it's me and my keyboard and Grammarly and to a certain extent, Claude, who's a pretty good editor. But your pre-AI tools, even then, the process is kind of the same. I have a diary invite to myself on a Saturday in which I'm brain dumping ideas of things that float by on social. And I will then occasionally, when the news hits, I will write out my thoughts on LinkedIn. And sometimes they will make it to brain food, sometimes they won't. And that's a nice little test balloon to see like how popular is this story, should it, should it get included? But it's really, it's just Simon just decides. Like the acid test of what goes in there is, is it interesting? And as you start writing something, it becomes obvious what you're not saying and what context is missing. So I'll just add a little bit of context. But then I don't know if you've ever heard of the banana problem, which is like I know how to spell it, but I just don't know when to stop. That's kind of the problem I have of like I'm trying to people are already complaining the things too long, but I want to unpack it so that from first principles, you can follow that chain of thought. You might disagree with the chain of thought, but at least you can follow it and you can follow the rationale and the logic. Not always possible. I'm a dad with a day job. I got a lot going on, but I just, I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best to get this out on a weekly basis. And it's been an incredible experience. It's been a flywheel. You write things and it helps people and they reach out and you end up with all of this stuff where suddenly opportunities appear and people want you to speak at things and it's been uh, it, it's been an absolute journey so so yeah that's kind of the process i like that so first of all please do not make it shorter i think we're all squirrels already 
I mm-hmm. like your newsletter because it offers different things, but it also offers enough depth to make you think. So I love it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Now let's continue that thought around FinTech brain food. You said something that I was actually going to ask you because the deck that you put together is amazing. And I'm like, oh, wait, how does Simon find time to do all of that? Because it was thick and it has a lot of different points and offers as different things for thought process and it outlines the state of FinTech. Now, one thing in particular within that deck caught my eye, you were talking about fraud and scam, mm. which is one thing that I hope actually our industry will pay a little bit more attention. And you wrote in there, you say fraud and scams are the single biggest crime and security risk in the economy. Tell us a little bit more about what you were thinking there and how that intersects with what you're doing at Sardine. Yeah, so the two are related, right? Like my personal story is my dad got scammed. And the very next meeting I had the next day was with a guy called Soups Ranjan, who was early days of Sardine, and he was demoing his product to me. And he walked me step by step how the software can catch that type of scam. And that just felt too meaningful to me to not want to move towards. And if there's uh, one bug I have as a human being, it's uh, being infinitely curious. And, and once, you, once I went down this rabbit hole of fraud, I didn't realize how bad the problem is and how bad the problem's getting. It's getting exponentially worse. And um, we know what from the pandemic, what exponential curves can do to, uh, to our lives and, and to society. But it was actually only recently I discovered uh, a study by Portsmouth University in the United Kingdom that had estimated the annual cost of fraud to the global economy at $5.38 trillion. That is larger than the GDP of the United Kingdom. I mean, this is an enormous amount of money. And the uh, Interpol put out a study said the number one crime risk, the number one crime risk is fraud. Why? Because what you're doing is you're using fraud and money laundering to create the funding for all other illicit activities. The UN put out a report saying that, and I'll cite these all for your show notes and I'll pull them for you, that the untold misery of the scammer, not just being scammed, so you know, you're getting scammed, somebody, your parent gets scammed, they lose some money, that's bad, but we're in the West and we're comfortable. You know, we can generally, for the most part, hopefully recover from that. On the other side of the world, 140,000 people were trafficked through Myanmar to work in scam call centers. The direct link between human trafficking and human misery and fraud is really, really clear in the UN. It's really, really clear at Interpol. It's not really, really clear in financial services. We think about this as a checkbox process. We think about this as a cost on doing business. We don't think about it as the most important thing we could be doing with our lives. And I do. Uh, I take it really, really seriously. But the other thing that's happened is since the pandemic, Everybody who was not digital suddenly has had to go digital. So now what have the fraudsters got? They've got fresh meat. They've got people who don't really understand 
working in digital that don't have the muscle memory of dealing with fraud suddenly coming into the space, whether it's vulnerable consumers, vulnerable smaller businesses, frankly, that's where a lot of the issue is, then you've got some some real problems to deal with. And of course, the last thing on, on this space is the reported fraud figures always massively underestimate the issue because most fraud goes undetected. You, you can only report what you can detect successful fraudsters getting away with it. And most of it, I, I keep bumping into prospects for Sardine who say, we don't have a fraud problem. And it's like, oh, sweetie, no, you do. You just don't know you do because the fraudsters are tricking you. That's the, that's the whole point. So it, it's such an important mission. The numbers and the losses are staggering. The, I think, again, the report by Portsmouth University put the cost to any business between 6 to 8% of expenditures in the whole business are, are actually the hidden costs of fraud. And it's such a hard thing to calculate. That's the thing. So the, oh, the frustration I have with it is, is unbelievable because in e-commerce, we still think about all oh, that stupid fraud control that means I'm turning away too many good customers and it's creating too much friction. And I get that. That's, that's where the innovation challenge comes in. That's where we've got to use more data, better data. We've got to get better at that. But this is, this is the biggest issue in law enforcement. This is the biggest issue in compliance. This is the biggest issue, I think, for us as a global society to try and solve to impact human misery. So that's why I think it's huge. You can't have a world without the ability to move money and the ability to move money will be constrained um, by, by the cost of fraud. I can't agree more. I think it's the human side of things that we tend to forget. We look at all of these as numbers. I remember one of the last reports that we did in ARP, they were putting the figures at $28 billion annually on fraud just against the older adults. And, and the one challenge we forget is, is not just that they're losing money and perhaps sometimes they're losing the entire ability to, to live right for the rest of their lives, but also the mental impact oftentimes, you know, older adults, when they get scammed, either a, as you say, is underreported or B, even if they do say something, it's about, well, how stupid could I be to get scammed? I feel ashamed. The confidence. Right. And, and it, it deteriorates someone's mental health drastically things that we can't really put a number next to. So kudos to you guys for, for doing more. And I do hope that financial institutions will take this more seriously. I, I hope so too. You know, frankly, there's no silver bullet, but I do think that innovation is a responsibility. Um, and I'm very happy to talk to any financial institution that wants to learn more about how they can do better in this space. Let's turn our eyes maybe more positive view of the industry. So, you know, it's the turn of the calendar page here. Predictions are flying. Some have been predicting the worst of our fintech winter is over and behind us. And the outlook for 24 and going forward is looking pretty good. And it probably centers in three main areas, I think. The next generation of fintech infrastructure. That's one that speaks to me very clearly. You know, financial technology for underserved industries. And the CFO software stack, I know you've mm -hmm. thought about that one before. So curious to hear what's your take on the, the predictions for looking up. 
I mean, all of those are trends that are already exist, just continuing into the future. I think zooming out from those, fintech was oversold. And whenever people are overly bearish on something, then obviously they overcorrect. And they were overly bullish on fintech. You know, like if you go back and look at my brain foods from 2021, 22, even towards it, it feels a bit frothy is a phrase, a sentence that you will see come up on more than one occasion. Like this is, this is kind of silly, isn't it guys? Like, and, and maybe that's the British understatement coming through. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure fellow commonwealthers here will, will feel that, but there's, I don't know if that landed. And same on the other side, like now it lands when you have, when you stand for something, when I say BNPL is good and I will die on this hill, I'm being theatrical to get attention and then trying to actually, you know, make a sensible point in the body copy. But so many people only see the headlines. They don't, they don't see what's underneath. My outlook for 2024 is frankly, all organizations have to get their fraud and compliance act in order, but that's part of the maturity curve for a lot of fintech companies we're in this difficult teenage phase where you're at scale you've had your first challenges in life and it's time to grow up and get a job and become consistent and that's a, a maturing of the industry with a technology stack that's been around for quite some time cloud and mobile in particular have really changed how we manufacture and distribute products uh, in in this age but that happened in sort of 2010. There's a new wave of uh, spatial and AI in particular. And whilst everybody talks about generative AI, nobody's really talking about machine learning anymore, but that's the technology whose time has come. Machine learning, the way Google would think about it is the answer doesn't matter what the question is. The way most financial institutions would think about it, it's like, we have one of those, we have a machine learning. And it's like, well, uh, mm, is it, you know, how clean is your data? How good is your data governance? Like, is this, is it at scale? How large is it? Are you uh, collaborating with partners? Do you have a machine learning feature store? Are your data engineers able to work with that across silos in their organization? The, the second layer of questions just haven't matured. So that maturation curve, I think is, is one trend. And then the second trend is there's a new generation coming up. I mean, I'm one of the oldest millennials, but I'm about to hit 40. I don't know if you've noticed. I've said that, I think, twice now. I feel old. But when I look at the, the companies coming up that, that are specifically focused on Gen Z, it's as weird to me as TikTok is. Like, I'm, I, uh, I don't understand this. I don't want this. And that means that with every generation, we'll see new things come up. So who needs another neobank? A new generation of people do and they want something different and they stand for something different and they'll solve different problems in different ways, perhaps with different technologies. So as I look at like difficult teenage phase for like the millennial companies that are approaching a decade old and have got to get their house in order, don't discount the, the kindling of, of what's down below as well. So I don't know if that answered your question, but it's just my sort of market read it. Stay tuned for future incarnations of fintech brain food where maybe simon gets more deeply into his predictions let's see mm. so you know neobanks for the future generations let's watch what's to come there but let's talk a second about big banks because they're not going anywhere either jane fraser from city said this year will be critical for the mega bank and, and they're engaged in a massive you know multi-year restructuring 
cutting to 90,000 jobs by the end of 26. And meanwhile, you know, JP Morgan reported 23 was its most profitable year ever. So kind of big picture, the same story seems to be repeating itself here, I think. People are spending, they're spending on their credit cards, particularly the US seem to be addicted to reward points and such, mm. but then not paying as much off every month as maybe past trends would dictate. So where do you think that story goes? Uh, consumer health and credit quality is, is gonna be a big issue and we should loop back on that without question. But I think it was actually Jim Maroos that said it uh, on a Breaking Banks about a week ago. He said, um, there isn't a big five anymore. There's a big one. And that's spot on. Like Citibank, I think, should no longer be called a mega bank. Like it, it's not. It's a retreating bank. It's, it's cutting off the broken bits of the business to try and find profitability. It's not growing. And I do think unless you are sustainably investing in innovation ahead of the market and you're sustainably investing in m a and you're getting the corporate politics out of the way to achieve that then your alternate then you you're screwed you're just going to be that you ever seen the meme where there's like the the little stick figure and the bandana and it's poking a rock and it says come on do something it's kind of how i feel about most senior leaderships and banks it's like you do you're not doing anything you're just standing still and standing still in real terms means moving backwards because when inflation is what it is, your growth rate is what, two or 3% on top line, maybe, you know, on earnings, it's about there. You're, you're sort of, you're not going to disappear anytime soon, but what you were the CEO who over the course of 10 years, uh, managed decline. That's kind of where you are. I think the shock therapy, at least uh, I will give City this, at least they have the courage to go through the shock therapy. But I do think the shock therapy that gets the headlines is look how many staff we're going to exit. Um, the shock therapy that's really needed is the courage to bring in people who can lead and then the courage to support them once they're in. So the amount of times I've seen large organizations, I'm sure you have, bring in the digital person from big tech and that person very quickly gets bored and ignored. And that's not where you want to be. That's not effective. Um, hiring processes that work on consensus where most of the management will get on with them most of the time, where everybody can say no and nobody can say yes. That's how you become comfortable. And being comfortable is how you slowly become irrelevant. You have to be constantly uncomfortable. This is a very different market. And I think the statement that Jamie Dimon said, which is, quote, he is shit scared of fintech, is exactly right. That's why they are where they are, because they are constantly trying to up their game, because they are constantly looking out of the window and seeing competitors everywhere. If you want to be great, that's what you're going to do. So I, I have never been the CEO of a bank. I've heard there's hard jobs, double hard jobs, and then there's being CEO. So I am just a guy with a blog, right? Take that for what it's worth. Like, I'm, I'm very aware that Everything I've said looks great on paper, but it's different being in the arena and trying to deliver it. Shout out to a female CEO who's actually got the courage to execute on this stuff and to own those decisions. I really wish her well, but I also hope that she's not just renting the same old um, sort of support network of consultancies and third parties and management. 
like this has to be something that goes all the way through. And I think sometimes the issue is people just don't know digital until they see a competitor do it first. That's kind of, it's just an awareness issue. Like if you are in your mid to late fifties, I mean, I see it now. I don't live in the TikTok world. I need the memes translating. Like you have to recognize your own blind spots and work actively to try and overcome them. And that means being constantly uncomfortable. So credit to Jane Fraser. And speaking of credit to, to the second part of your question, the credit quality will deteriorate. We've not really seen, the, there's like a lag effect of um, interest rate policy. We, we know this. The consumer just stays resilient, stays resilient, stays resilient until they don't and delinquencies are rising. Now, if they go back to pre-pandemic levels, that's not lovely, but it's okay. The issue is how much worse do they get and does it drive us into a consumer-led recession, especially when so much of our economic growth has been driven by the consumer and can we keep them hooked on ever more debt or does eventually the credit quality uh, reality have to matter, especially in an environment where your cost of funding is fundamentally different. We're not on cheat code interest rates anymore. This is, this is you know, the, the spreadsheet's not gonna look great forever. And we're seeing this already in the smaller banks. Credit quality really, really matters. Your cost of funding's gone up. You have private credit really competing in this market now. What do you do? I think it's hard. I had to chuckle when you were talking about the next generation. My mm. kids are teenager and preteen. And recently I bought a Gen Z dictionary. I could do not. The, I got to the point where I do not understand anything they're saying, even though they are plain English, but they do employ the words differently. And so I bought myself a dictionary only to find out that apparently it's already out of date because things change so much. So I'm using the analogy to what you're saying with financial services, with what the next generation is looking for and with the kind of still quasi status quo with respect to banks. I do agree with you. I give Frazier a lot of credit for having the guts to actually do something. Being a 30 something year city customer, I can tell you it is painful. I have three accounts, three sets of ATM cards, three different logins, because one was open in New York when I was there, one's open in DC, and one's open when I have a small business. And I do write myself checks every month just so I could transfer money. That's the <laughs> only way I can move money. Yes. <gasps> then your next question, Simon, is why are you still there? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. Like, why haven't you gone full, full <laughs> because digital? Because it's too much work. <laughs> I have so many years of financial relationships and auto pay and all of that ingrained with one bank. It is Do impossible you know to ticket it. Wonderful services now called payroll APIs that they they just automate not only your direct deposit but also your bill auto pays. Like, try it with one of the accounts, and then so here here's my um, mechanism for being uncomfortable: overcommit yourself, and then deal with the consequences when you're overcommitted. <laughs> it's just ow. Oh, oh crap! I've, oh crap! I've pressed the button. What do I do now? I. Trust me, it will eventually get to it. I need to get to a stay where I can actually get sleep and then do that. So, well, yes. all right, yeah. Sorry for being like no. you, you've got you're running a business and oh, okay, no, fine. it's more like I have two children. 
you can imagine all of us can imagine so but all jokes aside um i do wonder how many of those accounts with the big bangs are in similar state because i'm not the only one who has that maruz talks about writing himself checks all the time as well so it is interesting is a very uniquely american phenomenon i think um now bringing us back on track on this side of the pond recently leaders of the house financial service committee have created a bipartisan working group on AI. Now, mind you, everything takes a snail pace in here because we do have different states, different jurisdiction, different preferences, if you will, and different means of making everything political, even when they're not. So when it comes to the topic of AI, we're gonna be crawling here. Whereas in the EU, there is a UAI Act that, okay, still needs to be signed off and agreed upon and all that. And then UK, you guys have a different way of dealing with things. Are we ever going to see progress since, you know, I can't let you off without talking about AI, you know that. So what progress do we want, right? Like it would be nice if AI didn't choose violence and wipe out the species, but I don't think that's the real short term threat. Yeah. yeah. The short-term threat is the misuse of AI for negative consequences like developing bioweapons, scaling up scams and fraud, uh, creating political instability and so on. And, and, and I think that is a material threat. The It was actually uh, Rishi Sunak did a good thing when he organized the AI summit and brought together world leaders and all of the countries of the world, including China at a time when that was geopolitically difficult, to sign up to an intent to thoughtfully engage with the subject. Now, even the executive order from Biden was well intended. I think there's a lot of really good intention coming from government. I just don't think they have the mechanism to deal with the speed. You're you're trying to fix something with the law, which is an 18th century technology, when you're dealing with exponential curves in progress. I don't know if you've seen what stability AI or mid-journey version one would generate versus mid-journey version six. This is like 18 months of progress, but oh my God, this is progressing incredibly quickly. And so, you know, the the technology has hit an exponential curve and we do need to be mindful of the misuse of uh, generative AI because it is already the case where deep fake voice cloning attacks are used to scam people out of money. Picture the scene. You get a phone call from one of your kids. Mom, mom, they've got me. I'm in prison. I I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I promise. I promise. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then click. The next call you get is, hi, um, I'm the court-appointed lawyer. Yeah, your son's in a lot of trouble. And this is remarkably effective. It's it's worked on, on numerous occasions. It's high risk, but it's high value historically to try and do that. But now, with the amount of social media that's out there, finding somebody's voice, I only need 30 seconds to be able to train an AI model And so the way in which we can, the effectiveness of that attack and the cost of that attack for the scammer has come down dramatically. So when you think about who's going to adopt the technology first, it's often the the threat actors because they have no worries about, you know, is is it going to be by, whereas the large financial institutions, 
the amount of process they have to go through to make sure that it's not using copyrighted IP before they can even think about using it for the defense against fraud is, is phenomenal. And yet this feels like a thing where uh, a lot of organizations will default to trying to build their own like Bloomberg did, which is kind of like trying to build your own internet. You know, this is fundamentally a game of power laws and there are gonna be a small collection of really specialist things that really, really stand out. So again, to, to the earlier point, Machine learning is a technology whose time has come. I am consistently disappointed by how effective that has been deployed throughout organizations, despite the billions they spend with consultants trying to do it. It's just, with one or two notable exceptions, shout out to Capital One, who've been really, really publicly effective in this stuff. Like they get data in a way that others don't, to some extent, Chase. Um, does, you know, and some fraud and AML teams internally, you know, the Bank of America's blah, blah, blah. There's people using it in pockets, but it's we're nowhere where we need to be. But generative AI, look, it's the humans using generative AI that we've got to worry about. Therefore, and, and it's the fact that it can be jailbroken up to 92% of the time, according to some research that I saw recently. You know, we have unleashed... Um, dual use technology onto the world and we said it costs $20 a month to use the most advanced version of it oh and you can jailbreak it 92% of the time or like you think that's not going to have some negative consequences now I'm, I'm naturally a uh, from my sins I am uh, I have an optimism bias I think that the system will balance itself and uh, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So the more extreme the fraudsters get, the more extreme the state will start to push back. But we have fundamental challenges to solve. I don't think law and regulation is the best answer. I fear it might be the only answer, but we need better answers. And I would love to see an actual attempt to do something open source that wasn't just market capture. Like the intent behind open AI was actually correct. It's just very hard to do that with the level of investment and scale that's required. And then, you know, it, why does it have to become a bipartisan issue in everything? Now we've got like EA versus EAC and it's, it's all got weird. Um, it did. And, and I did like, the original intent of OpenAI until recently, I don't know if you noticed, they removed the wording around using it for military purpose. So it is a slippery slope. I do remember the time when Google was do no evil until they removed it as well. Technology can always be used for good and bad. We like to say that, but it's the humans behind it. So who is the humans behind funding OpenAI? a company that was supposed to be focused on responsibility and accountability, but sooner or later, bills need to get paid, right? So that is, that is my struggle with it. I do hope that to your earlier point, banks would find more tech talent. I think that's the one thing that makes Kaplan stands apart is they do hire a lot of tech people, a lot, a lot of them. You need that to be able to figure out how we can take advantage of the technology and mitigate the risk. You need someone who understands it. Now, before we let you go, Simon, <laughs> I want to ask you, I know we say that a lot, <laughs> what are the top three things that you have top of your mind that's yet? And what is the one thing that you think is overhyped? Hmm. So top three things. Number one is um, rates didn't save us. 
I think the banks thought interest rates normalizing would mean, oh, we're back to normal. These silly fintechs, off they go. Uh, oh, we, there we are. What they didn't expect was a banking crisis and uh, sort of the, the cost of funds versus the uh, credit quality conditions to really deteriorate in, in the way that they're looking like they will. And especially when we've seen the issues with health and maturity securities on the balance sheet. So balance sheet power is not what it used to be in, in, in this market. So rates didn't save us. Number two, everything is embedded. It used to be that embedded finance was like a debit card for a consumer distributed some different way. Now it's name your favorite financial product and name your industry vertical. And there is some SaaS platform that does it. And it does it with an extremely interesting convoluted lending product that's also a brokerage that's also treasuries that's also like whoa the complexity of embedded finance has multiplied and that's going to have unintended consequences so we've seen the tri-agency guidance on the sort of uh, third parties more broadly and that was just with consumers and bsa aml and, and and sort of fair lending now what does that look like if you are offering treasuries and you're offering more complex products i just think there's there's a lot of scope for this to go wrong few a few will get it right but of course they are the ones that will not get the plaudits um everybody will point at the ones that get it wrong and i think we're, we're sort of heading into some more choppy waters and there's hard work to do as everything becomes embedded but that's also where the growth opportunity is and i think the third thing if i was to say it is it's a good question i think Big tech's consistent advancing sometimes gets a lot of headlines, but it's also what's been missed is it's kind of like um, as a metaphor. We get 1% better every year at curing cancer. And nobody really notices that progress because, uh, you know, I've lost loved ones. I'm sure many have uh, to, to the awful, god-awful big C. So you feel it. You feel the negativity a lot more than you feel the progress. Uh, with you know the drama around oh Apple and Goldman and da 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 what everybody's no not noticing is Apple's doing open banking in the United Kingdom and they're pulling that in they're they're working with states to bring in driver's licenses into the wallet they are building something really really interesting and they're probably one of the few big tech players that's got their act together and I'm consistently underwhelmed by Meta and Google in this space but I really think that space of the digital wallet for consumers is absolutely the future i'm with kathy wood on this whether it's uh, square whether it's uh, it was cash app or venmo or something from apple that's the sense of financial life people just haven't realized it yet and if you don't have a what am i going to do about wallets like really clear execution plan then i think you're screwed pays is interesting i think it's got a weirdly outside shot of being the boomer wallet like just the way Zelle was the boomer peer-to-peer payments service. Like, you know, I can kind of see that. That's probably not a bad idea. But again, your customers will, you know, not be here forever. So who's serving the next generation? I think you need to think about that if you're thinking longer term. Uh, and the most overhyped thing, 
it simultaneously is is gen ai and it's also underhyped like it, it's a it's a massive transformation but most people are building things that gpt4 doesn't do yet uh and most people are building things uh that will fail uh, but hey you know that's venture um but what that means is people are ignoring quiet progress elsewhere in machine learning and that's kind of why i keep coming back to that point uh there's obvious low-hanging fruit use cases of like summarization and help me with my chargebacks and my disputes and my SAR narratives and my marketing company and is this udap compliant but really a lot of these things we call it gen ai as in artificial intelligence but it's really intelligent augment intelligence augmentation you are the human being who has this like amazing superpower to do things quickly now but occasionally it's going to go wrong and you have to know that and you can't just trust it blindly yet maybe you can in the future but you can't just trust it blindly and i think so long as that's required we'll actually see the development of much more fractional workers like what does the freelancer economy look like in the future can the freelancer be 10x more productive can the freelance compliance consultant actually be powered by gen ai and do 10 times more work you know reviewing udaps all day generated by gen ai but catching the one that sort of stands out that's kind of, I think, more realistic in the short term. Longer term, who knows? But if I see another personal finance management with Gen AI thing, I think I'm going to scream. So you see Apple doing the right things right and having their act together, but has it prompted you to buy an iPhone, Simon? Oh, dear God, no. Uh, dear God, no. It's funny, with, with Sardine, they, they, they're very big on security, so I have to do certain things through a Mac. But I've set myself up with like my brain food laptop, in which I do the vast majority of things that I can do, including writing and, and everything else, which is most of my job, frankly, in social accounts and anything that's not mission critical. And I've built like a keyboard video miniature swatch, uh, a switch so that I don't have to touch it as much as possible. No, no way. Uh, here's my pixel eight just to prove it like yeah that's so so i guess you won't be rushing to go buy the vision pro this week <laughs> no you know but uh i want to try one and i want to see what the market does with it because give them that they can execute it's just is this uh is this airpods is this apple tv you know is this is this like a, a marginal improvement or is this the beginning of spatial as a as a way of interacting with computers don't know i'm curious too we have a debate in the house whether or not we're going to have one or two so the debate is still yeah. open but to your point about apple i remember when they came out with the savings account a while back and i was super excited i signed up for it right away my son at that time, he was 13 and he looked at me, he asked me what it was and, and I told him and he said, he said to me just as a quick reaction kind of thing, why does anyone still need a bank? Mm. Right? Because you can use Apple Pay. I use Apple Pay all the time here and overseas and, you know, use it to save money. You use it to do everything that we need apart from mortgage. Why do we need a big bank for so he got a point. And to your point about innovating for the next generation, what they might be looking for, the kids don't do TikTok, but they are keen fully aware of the social aspect online and how they interact with their friends. So more to come, Barb, I'm sure you see that in your house as well.
Yeah, definitely. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Simon. Appreciate your time always. And please do sign up for Simon's newsletter, um, Brent Tech Brain Food. And for the rest of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you next week. 